0: I'm Luke Simmons. And I'm Seth Trout. Welcome to King Culture. All
1: right, Seth. Well, welcome back. It's uh, great to be together, man.
0: It is good to be together. It's going to be a dicey topic today.
1: Yeah, it seems like it. I mean, we're following up a conversation about worthless men. Uh, which really emerged out of Hamas's attack on Israel, right? That's a lot of what got us thinking about that. And as you keep following that story, you, you obviously start bumping into lots of stuff related to war. And as that has developed, uh, you know, that gets into this conversation we're having
0: today. Yeah, the question about violence and use of violence, force, use of force, to what extent should Christians uh, use violence to get what they want yeah. or to defend themselves, uh, I mean, there's obviously, there are certain things that v- virtually all Christians everywhere have agreed on. Like, sh- you should not use violence to rob someone. It's right. non-controversial. Yeah, But within that frame of things, there are questionable uses of violence. Uh, and it, within the history of the church, last couple thousand years, there have been a lot of different voices that have shaped and spoken into uh, that. And I think we would be uh, benefited as a church to just be generally aware of how the conversations have gone the last 2000 years both as we consider foreign policy like i don't think anybody listening to this is going to be president of the united states <laughs> right least, almost <laughs> close to 0% chance yeah. and slightly less close to 0 but still close to 0 will a congress person who's going to be voting on more uh, listen to this but we will vote for people who vote for those things And in a democratic republic or government of the people, we get to be a part of voicing those things. So, both in terms of how we vote, but even more. Well, that's
1: the macro as it relates to war, right? And nations and things like that. But there's also just questions of self defense, self defense, and guns and. You know, what should and shouldn't you do to protect yourself or your family or others? Uh, Yeah, it's a really interesting question.
0: Yeah, so I'm thinking we would start big picture and talk about wars and then kind of get more practical, personal.
1: Okay. Before we do that, though, tell me, like, if this conversation does what you hope, uh, what will it do? Because like you said, you know, we're not in charge of this. I remember one time hearing a pastor, he was talking about how he went to go visit different churches. And he went to some mainline church and they were talking about how we need to get rid of all our nuclear weapons. And he said, well... I don't have any nuclear weapons, so I didn't think that sermon applied to me very much. So, <laughs> yeah, I, you know, we don't want to do that, but we, we hope this accomplishes something. So obviously a piece of it is just informing about, hey, here's ways different people have thought about it through church history. What else? What if, if we hit the target, what does this do?
0: I want us to think more congruently with the history of God's people, that when we come to the ballot box or when we uh, come to defend ourselves... I don't want us to just rip a saying of Jesus out of context and think we know what we're talking about. Uh, I want us to be reliant on wisdom of the past. Uh, G.K. Chesterton talked about tradition as democracy of the dead. Yeah. And so we're trying to give voice to the uh, giants whose shoulders we're standing on as we think about these things. And so uh, what you'll notice when you watch uh, political uh, debates, especially in the United States, maybe less so elsewhere, is both Democrats and Republicans have their favorite verses they like to use sure. to claim that they are biblical. And so most of that to me is just virtue signaling. It's just people trying to say things that will make people vote for them. I don't think, I think very few Congress people are actually trying to submit their minds to the mind of God. Right. I think I think they're doing more catering to uh, uh, their base. Uh, and I would like us to not be tossed to and fro by, oh, so-and-so used a Bible verse, therefore they represent the way of, of Christ. And so it'd be helpful. And so I think that being rooted in history just serves us uh, and helps us be less tossed to and fro by current events and more historically connected to uh, the sweep of what God's people have been thinking and
1: feeling. Well, and it's interesting because as you follow the news, whether it's at the time of this recording, whether it's war in Ukraine uh, with Ukraine and Russia, whether it's in Gaza and Israel and Hamas, there's lots of assumptions people bring about, War and there's lots of even the questions that are asked by reporters to different government officials or whatever. Hey, what are you advocating for as it relates to this? It's all loaded with morality questions, right? Like, how much civilian death is okay, and what kinds of civilian death is okay, and you know, should a nation be doing this or be doing that? Or you know, th- there's there's lots of moral questions, and so this feels like something that we've got to let the scripture speak to.
0: Yeah. So pretend for a moment that. Uh Netanyahu, uh, who's the leader of Israel, suppose like tomorrow he converted to Christianity and was like Jesus is Lord uh, and was trying to then lead a Christian state responding to the systematic murdering and raping of Hamas. What would shape his mind as he's trying to make those Mm, choices? Yeah,
1: that's an interesting way to
0: put it. And slightly more personally, I'd say infinitely more personally, suppose someone breaks into your house tonight and is going to try to kill you and your family. What's the Christian response in the moment? Yeah. Uh, And so I would like it if listeners uh, would feel a great amount of peace that if someone came into their house to kill them and their family, that if they killed that person before they had the chance to do that, that they would be blessed in the eyes of the Lord. Okay. And I don't want people to feel moral tension about uh, protecting the dignity and value of their family and their image bearers. And I have Bible verses to back that up. Okay. Not, so Great. so that's practically the situation we're talking through here. So I want us to go back before we get personal and talk about Augustine, okay. St. Augustine, some pronounce it Augustine, and that's a mistake. It's <laughs> Augustine. Okay. So Augustine had a just war theory. So a little back it up here Augustine was uh, a leader of the church in the uh, fourth century uh, he wrote two books that he wrote a lot of books but he wrote probably two or three that have been hugely impactful some have argued that his book the city of God is the most impactful book on the history of the West as a whole yeah uh, maybe second to the Bible his other book confessions is about conversion and his his third book hugely impactful book was, uh, on Christian teaching, which is about uh, nature of the gospel and what the content of the Christian faith is. So he's, uh, really impactful, uh, was probably like the single most influential person for at least, uh, 1300 years. Uh, maybe no, 1100 years. And he was basically in North Africa, right? Yeah. North African guy, uh, discipled by Eusebius, uh, And he was dealing with questions of power in the state in kind of a fresh way. Because for the first two or three centuries of Christianity, uh, Christians were a severe minority. And so the idea of what should governments do when they go to war did not matter because they were on the fringes having no voice. Asking Christians in the second century, what 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 would a Christian state do if there was war?
1: Yeah, they just laugh at you, like <laughs> Christian state. You are crazy. What are you talking about? That'll yeah. never happen.
0: Yeah, or maybe not even a Christian state, because I don't want to get bogged down in can there be a Christian state? But I mean, let let's say there was a a president that was yeah trying to honor God in his attempts to go or not go to war. What would he do? So Augustine right right in, is like at the peak of the origins of Christendom.
1: Yeah, because Constantine by that point, by Augustine's point, had become a Christian. Yeah. or at least was uh, wanting the empire to be more Christian influenced.
0: Yeah, this is around the time of the codification of the Nicene Creed. And so most just war theory, obviously it goes back to uh, Plato and uh, other Greek th- thinkers, but its origin in Christianity really is Augustine. And so he really has two categories here for uh, just war. One is like just conditions for going to war and just conduct within Okay. So, I just want to think through these. I'm going to read these five. So, conduct for going to war. Uh, number one is a just cause. Number two, legitimate authority. Number three, right intention. Number four, last resort. Number five, probability of success. So, condition number one, just cause. War should be undertaken for a morally justifiable reason, such as self-defense or defense of innocent life. So, Within...
1: Those aren't the only reasons, but... Yeah, such those as. ...include, yeah.
0: Yeah, wanting to take someone's land would not be a just cause. Yeah. Like, uh, national theft, he would have called that. You know, so, like, a purely colonial mentality of we want to have more land. It's so like Napoleon just expanding, killing people in the name of economic expansion is a non-just cause. Okay. So, just cause would be Uh, They're trying to kill us or they're killing their own people. So like uh, he would even include like prevention of genocide in other places as a possible just cause. Uh, Number two is legitimate authority. War must be decreed and waged by legitimate authorities, such as governors or sovereign entities, not just kind of militias or individuals who feel like they're going to do it. Or terrorist organizations. Yeah, terrorist organizations. So uh, the city of Queen Creek decides we're going to wage war on Mexico (laughs) I, <laughs> right illegitimate means yeah right uh at like without even considering just cause or the other things it's like no cities can't declare war on nations and it's similar like could Arizona declare war on Mexico no that'd be illegitimate means just like uh Washington can't declare war on Canada you know yeah. so just cuz they're proximate uh so nations against nations uh, number 3 right intention so the goal uh so mm. In most ethics, you have, like, goal, standard, and motive. And so you're kind of getting some of these here. So now you're getting, like, the goal. What's the purpose? So the purpose of going to war should be to establish just peace and uh, correct a wrong, wrong. so not uh, self-gain or vengeance. So this is where you're kind of getting in some of, like, the distinctly Christian purposes. Like, there's pretty clear biblical teaching. Vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. So just getting them back is uh, not a just cause within a biblical Okay. Framework. Because Getting, ve- so revenge. Yeah. Revenge is not a vengeance. Uh, they stole from us, therefore, we'll blow them up. Like, this makes me think uh, when my brother and I shared a bedroom, and I remember one point, uh, you know, we, we like shared a queen bed. We had a bunk bed, but we preferred to sleep on the bottom because we had all a bunch of toys and junk on the top bunk. And it was like, um, okay, Daniel, if you cross this middle line, I'm going to punch you in the face, you know? And I was, Seven he was five he crossed my line I punch him in the face, and uh that'd be called vengeance you know like so <laughs> that'd be a not a right in, intention w- what about vengeance as a deterrent well that's that's where you kind of get into these next ones so we'll, we'll okay. get we'll get going there okay um so vengeance as deterrent wouldn't be considered vengeance it'd be considered self defense okay so uh distinguishing those things is difficult, sure And it's worth noting even on that point that even the most ardent proponents of just war theory wouldn't say there have been ever truly just wars.
1: Okay. Because it's more, you know, the theory that should try to inform how people think about it.
0: Yeah. It's like shapes. Like I said, describe to me the perfect marriage and I'd say, well, there'd be like like wholesome communication, like vibrant sexual connection, uh, financial unity. And I gave you all the contours of a great marriage. And it's like, well, by that definition, there's been zero perfect marriages. Yeah. But these are the ingredients we have to consider. Yeah. Okay. So this is a more defining bullseye. Uh, number four is last resort. War should be the last option after all peaceful means or resolutions have been exhausted. So it's not meant to be a first instinct or first flinch, but through mediation and through discussion, and through diplomacy, diplomacy, sanctions, translators. So like yeah. yeah. So you're trying to, uh, prevent, uh, you're not running to loss of human life yeah. as solution. Sure. So have I exhausted all possible means? Yeah. And then number five, probability of success. Uh, there should be a reasonable chance of success and the anticipated benefits of going to outweigh the way exp- they harm and destruction. So, uh, Basically, this is the, the pragmatic question of, are we going to lose a bunch of lives for nothing, or it'd be better just to surrender? Yeah. So if I'm stewarding a nation, and so, like, say I'm stewarding a smaller nation, and I say, like, what's the chance of success, and also what's the uh, best possible outcome for my citizens? Mm-hmm. It's like, well, if they're going to come and take over our nation and then commit genocide, well, we're all going to die anyway. We might as well die fighting. Mm-hmm. But they're gonna come and take over a nation, and send our tax dollars other places. Now we have to do like the loss of life versus loss of money, yeah, thing. And so that's more of a calculation there, and and that number five is a large reason why. Uh, like thinking through the pragmatic outcomes of why uh, nations taking over other nations has historically been effective is. Local leaders go. Would I rather my people be alive, or I'd rather them be forced to speak a different language? Well, sure. A lot of the time, it's we'd rather them have to speak a different language than be alive. So those are the five conditions for going to war: just cause, legitimate authority, right intention, last resort, probability of success. Jus ad bellum is the Augustinian Latin phrase. Okay. So then the the next question is: Well, when you're within war. How does that play out and so you have these really this is only so,
1: so now so the first was like okay should we or shouldn't we go to war okay now we're in war and we're just des- he's trying to describe here's what is just in the midst of
0: war yeah okay yeah so you probably hear about these two especially number one is proportionality um so that comes from augustine
1: augustine yeah. that's wild cause yeah you do hear that all the time in, in these latest conflicts That's a huge conversation.
0: Yeah, within the Christian tradition, it comes from Augustine. So that's like a big question Israel Hamas, you know, proportionality. So the force used in war should be proportional to the objective and not excessive. So So uh,
1: punching your brother in the face was not proportional to him crossing the pillow line.
0: Yeah, yeah, him (laughs) crossing the pillow line, I violated last resort, I violated legitimate authority, I violated... (laughs) sure. uh, I I probably violated probability of success because it wasn't going to work, and I definitely violated proportionality. <laughs> okay, yeah, so, so yeah. on a on a very micro level, okay, uh, you have the, the the that piece, and so that's not necessarily even. Uh, hey, so and so nation has nukes, so and so nation doesn't have nukes. Therefore, you can't use nukes because this has to be a fair fight. Right, that's not proportionality. It's not okay. equal strength of measures. It is.
1: So it's not. Uh, well, Hamas killed this many Jews, so. Israel can only kill this many. Yeah, it's not Hamas. Hamas killed and 1400,
0: Israel kills 1401. Now it's not proportional. Well, uh, what
1: about percentages, right? You you heard that. I mean, that was a huge thing in in these last, you know, weeks and months is like, you know, well, th- this many loss of lives would have been this many 9/11s if you do the percentages. Yeah. And then you do the percentages of Palestinians in Gaza and you go, well, by that percent, you know. So it's it's not a it's this is less of a Calculation. Yes. Like an exact mathematical calculation of proportionality and something. it's something else.
0: Yeah, it's more about the objective of the nation in the war. Okay. So if uh, Hamas wants to destroy all of Israel, then proportionality means Israel, then in resistance and self-defense, can destroy all of Hamas. Got it. Okay. So because the proportion is the... The existential threat that the nation is facing okay. in self-defense. So, because Israel right now understands themselves to be under a purely existential threat, meaning we will cease to exist if they get their way, the only option then is to cause them to cease to exist. Yeah. So that's proportional. That's not the only
1: option, but that is a proportional, proportionate
0: yes. option. Yeah. Yeah, and so uh, that's what proportionality means, and that would be an application of it. I'm not trying to actually speak to Israel policy because I actually have no idea. Uh, Discrimination is the next one. Combatants must distinguish between combatants and non-combatants, ensuring that civilians are not deliberately targeted. Okay. So discrimination between combatants and non-combatants. So people fair game, people not fair game, uh, able to kill those things. And so a war is not just if you are killing non-combatants on purpose or in unpreventable ways. Yeah. So that's where a lot of the things within uh, the Hamas Palestine thing get dicey is, you know, because Hamas creates, is committing war crimes by building tunnels for their uh, jihadist uh, military terrorist organization underneath hospitals. Well, and the
1: entire Hamas military is underneath civilian. It's yes. you know, there's not like and that's oh, here's design. the Hamas bases far away from the city. It's like it's all it's all intertwined. Yeah. But it but it relates to you know America's question. I mean, and you drop a couple of nuclear weapons, nuclear bombs on Japan, you're bumping into
0: this question. Yes. Yeah, absolutely you are. Yeah, so uh, so that was get, that was number two? Yeah. And there's only two. Oh, okay. And and war, proportionality discrimination. Oh, it's just those two. Okay. Yeah. So those I don't really want to necessarily argue the pros and cons and the details of all those things. Whole books have been written about every single one of those points. Yeah. Um, but it's worth knowing that the Christian tradition through Augustine and on has a, had a concept of just war. And that does not mean that war is good. Uh, war is hell. War is terrible. The ripple effects of war, uh, destroy generations of people. Uh, it in and of itself is a terrible thing. And so what Augustine's not writing is what makes a good war? Yeah, sure. What, like, should we be happy about war? Again, like he's not glorifying war like the Greeks or the Romans did, where, like, the pinnacle of masculinity is war. Okay, uh, He's saying in a fallen world, war sometimes has to happen, And whether you want it to or not, or happens, Mm -hmm. here are some ways to think about it. I would say this is probably similar to like divorce. We should think about divorce. Divorce harms kids and harms families for generations, period, full stop. Uh, We should never be happy divorce happens. Yeah. Because divorce in and of itself, it may not be sin, but it's always the result of sin. And so it's always a grieving situation. So someone initiating divorce may not be in sin because they are protecting their kids, protecting themselves. Uh, someone else has like, committed adultery, under, yeah. and there's like this. And so it might be better to have a divorce given the sinful situation than to not have a divorce. Right. But always, it's a grievous, yeah. wounding situation. Sure. I think uh, divorce and war are good, uh, a yeah. good uh, parallel.
1: So... The question I have, because I know, I mean, people listen to this, they're not knuckle-draggers. They're, they're thinkers. They're sharp. Uh, and I can imagine some would go, okay, well, Augustine, as you factor that in, what about Israel's conquest of Canaan? Like, that feels like uh, 0 for 2 on that. It, you know, it, it feels like that, that doesn't line up with the five reasons, and it doesn't seem like it lines up with the way to do it. Like, uh, what do you do with that?
0: Yeah, so I don't know what Augustine would say, but so I'd say like when God gives you explicit commands, you just have to do them. So okay. So uh, when God decrees it, it's just. Yeah, when God decrees it, then obedience is just. I also think the conquest of Canaan was a slightly different deal. Uh some of those were probably viable or at least uh apply. So you think about a just cause Um, So self-defense or defense of innocent life, Canaanites were genocidal people who killed their sacrificed their kids. and Yeah. uh, Well, there's a
1: place in Genesis 15 where, you know, God tells Abraham, hey, you're going to go into this land and your family's going to be there for 400 years and they're going to be there a long time because the the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. In other words, like there's like a sin account that the local folks here are going to have to build up before I feel okay about wiping them out.
0: Yeah, and there's like uh, this view that the Canaanites are just like these victims, but they're actually a totally oppressive demonic culture. Uh, Right intention, obedience to God, right intention would be uh, the preservation of the Abrahamic faith that would eventually be the Messiah. Uh, Last resort, Israel is to be a city on the hill, a, a light to the nations. The Canaanites invited to repent, they don't do it. So there are ways you could kind of cram it into that probability okay. of success Well, God's on her side, you know, so, uh, proportionality. I don't know about that. Killing all the babies and everything, you know, yeah. it's a little tough discrimination. I don't think so. You know, yeah. so there's, I'm sure people have written accounts of trying to cram those into those things, Yeah, sure. but there's a piece of like, when God says it, then.
1: Well, I mean, I know we could do whole episodes on just that question, but I, it popped in my head as we were talking about this going like, boy, this, that, that, feels like a potential question that people would have. So
0: so there's other Christians. uh, So there's really only two schools of thought here, like just war theorists and pacifists. Yeah. Uh, And there's nuances and color within those things.
1: So there's a number of Christian traditions or Christian, there is Christian tradition that would say, no, Augustine was wrong here.
0: Yeah. We just disagree. There is no just war. Yeah. Uh, We should not engage in any of that stuff. Okay. But this idea that like Christians saying, I won't go to war, I won't, uh, engage on that level. I can't in clear conscience fight a battle. Uh, and so there are reasons that they would do that. And so they're really kind of like six main arguments for pacifism okay. that are worth considering or at least responding to um, that just worth theorists have to interact with. So number one is just the teachings of Jesus, uh, which would be if someone hits you on the cheek, turn the other cheek. Yeah. Right. Most of the Beatitudes of Matthew 5, Six and seven kind of paint this picture of a presumed kingdom nonviolence, live by the sword, die by the sword. My kingdom is not established by the sword, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. This is number one, just the teachings of Jesus. Number two, the imitation of Jesus. Jesus himself was a nonviolent uh, actor, right? He, Jesus, didn't come bearing the sword. He came yeah. praying and healing and working. Uh, number three. Uh, Ethics of love and forgiveness. So, uh, God is love. We meant to imitate Him. He is love. It's not loving to murder or kill people. Uh, they really emphasize like this forgiving thing that the uh, because vengeance belongs to God, we therefore forgive. Move on. Uh, number four, and this is a really significant one, is actually like the the Christian teaching on the dignity of human life. Hmm. Yeah, is this kind of pragmatic proportionality discrimination thing. Now you're doing like utilitarian cost benefit on human lives, which represent the image of God. And because human lives are sacred and have sanctity, part of being pro-life means like resisting death by all means. If other people want to kill people, then God will judge them. But I won't kill people in the name of not killing people. Sanctity of human life. Number five is a witness to the kingdom. It's like we're meant to be a foretaste of the new heavens and new earth and so we wanna be a picture of that. And number six, this is a pretty significant one. This is probably one that I hear most repeated by like pretty conservative Christians. Okay. Is their distrust of the worldly powers. Mm, So they would say, I believe in a just war theory in theory, but practically do I trust the United States Congress and its chief executive officer? or Commander-in-Chief, do I trust them to apply just war theory? No. So I'm going to not. So really thoughtful Christians that I know who are who label themselves pacifists are like pacifists uh, prag- for pragmatic reasons. So like on paper, they said, yes, I agree with Augustine, but practically our godless Congress can't actually execute on this, so I can't join the U.S. military. So... Distrusting worldly powers, especially if you're in a nation that is explicitly uh, godless in various ways, whether it's the United States or some European country or China, you yeah. know, you're going, Yeah, sure. our country, because of its lack of fear of God, cannot execute a just war would be like the okay. argument there.
1: Is that, that's it? Those is are there, the six. Yeah. Those are the six. Okay, So, so here's what's interesting to me. I mean, as a just Bible evangelical Christian, I mean, in general— I kind of want to go i know everyone can misuse scripture but you know i generally like to see that your argument comes from scripture i hear those six and i go those all sound way more like they just come out of the bible than augustine's stuff like so i mean i can see why that's pretty compelling and uh yet i think you're gonna tell me that that's (laughs) that's incorrect or at least that from your perspective you're coming more at a From a just war, right? I'm just sitting here having not really, not really read much of this, not really listened to a bunch of this stuff. Like, I mean, I'm probably like the average person listening here, and I'm going, okay, Augustine stuff sounds really philosophical and interesting. The pacifist stuff sounds a little more biblical, yeah. And and yet, I'm sure there's other biblical reasons why the pacifist arguments don't totally hold up. But
0: yeah, Augustine in the long form, there's a lot of Bible there. Um, (laughs) So okay. Uh, but yeah, probably the way I summarized it's not the most bible as it could have been. Uh, I think there's, here's my main deal. is like, if you're going to join the military, so my brother's military uh, was, uh, a lot of my good friends have been, I think it's worth at least feeling the tension of asking the question, should I do this? What yeah. does the Bible say about it? Sure. So um, same if you're going to be a police officer, same if you're going to be any type of use of force field, it's worth noting that Christians have had a tremendous have felt tremendous tension about this over the centuries. Yeah. And to just kind of dismiss it all as like being soft, mm. I think is pretty uh, false. It's okay. probably not healthy. So some of the arguments that you see, it's like on the moral, on the teachings of Jesus. So let's kind of work through this. Here's some of the responses to those. So
1: so this is now you kind of going, okay, here's how people would come, and come back. Yeah, here's at the pacifist argument.
0: Yeah, so you really ought to turn the other cheek. If someone hits you on the cheek, turn the other cheek. That to me, and the way I understand that text is that's less about uh, violence and more about insult. It's someone slaps you with the back of their hand. Mm. They're saying you're less than. Mm. Like it's 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 an insult to your manhood. It's not an attempt on your life. Okay. And so, turn the other cheek is about not uh, the the command that Paul gives to not revile when reviled. Yeah. Uh, it's about. Uh, fearing God and valuing his opinion of you more than mankind's opinion of you. It's about not trading insult for insult. Um, it's about not escalating. So if someone says you, hey, you're a loser, you don't escalate it and say, your mom is a loser, and then you guys are having a fist fight. When in reality, you could have turned the other cheek and walked away and been fine. This probably applies to road rage as much as world violence and war. You know, if someone cuts you off in traffic, do you speed up next to them and flip them off? You know, that's not turn the other cheek. Uh, So this really is explicitly more about, um, I think, insults than it is about attempts on someone's life. Uh, So there's moral teaching of Jesus. I think also you have various Roman soldiers who come to Christ in various encounters, And Jesus never says, like, if you want to follow me, quit the military. Mm, So so that's kind of an argument from silence. It's not a strong argument, but there's... You think about, like, when Jesus meets the woman in John 8, he says, go sin no more. He's basically condemning her way of life and saying, now that you've met me, go and do something else. Go sin no more. Whereas he doesn't totally do that with the soldiers as far as I can remember.
1: Well, yeah, and there is a spot early in Luke. I don't know if it's Luke 2 or 3 or 4. I'm not sure. But where, um, you know, there is a a question about what repentance looks like. You know, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And I know he does address the soldiers. Yeah. And he doesn't tell them, hey, bear fruit in keeping with repentance by divest from the Roman state. Yeah. He didn't
0: didn't do that. Yeah. And the Roman government was at least as evil as our government. (laughs) Sure. Which is, I don't want to, so I'm not, I don't want to overspeak here, but there's that there. Uh, Imitation of Christ is a great point. Jesus was a nonviolent person in his first coming, in his second coming. It looks pretty violent. Yeah. Sure.
1: Yeah. You read the end of Revelation. It is not. It sounds like a lot of army and a lot of blood
0: and yeah, a lot of We want to be a foretaste violence. of the kingdom. Well, which part of the kingdom? Right. Because part of the foretaste of the kingdom is Jesus, uh, without exception, eliminating evil. Yeah. And so I think that a police officer who removes uh, a, an abused woman from a home and in doing so has to commit violence on her abusive partner, uh, he's being a foretaste of the kingdom. Yep. Like, so, so I think... Uh, there, there's that there. So obviously okay. that can devolve into like justifying pettiness, things like that. Uh, I So the, the biblical command to like not commit vengeance and the command to like uh, protect, uh, be voiced for the voiceless, I think there's that type of deal there. Uh, the, the distrust of worldly powers is a great question. You know, is Congress a good deciding? Like you can look at past, like if, even if the, the most patriotic people should be able to look on back on American history and say, Every war we fought was not 100% good all the time. Yeah. We need to be able to hold that intention. And if we can't, uh, we probably have elevated America from a place we love and benefit from to some type of idol if we can't critique it. Sure. Right? Like there's there's only one ineffable institution, mm-hmm. and it is God and his kingdom. Everything else is faulty or fallen somewhere. Uh so so the big tension here is like that sanctity of human life, uh, vengeance belongs to the Lord versus to what degree am I responsible. And so getting on a really practical level, I think a huge text to me that illustrates this on a more personal level. So now we're gonna get personal. Uh if anybody listening to this is a is a a government official and needs more, we can talk more about that. <laughs> but sure. For all of us normal folks, uh, this kind of gets more level of like voting, which we have some influence in our practical self-defense. So there's a text that explicitly addresses this that I think we should consider in Exodus 22, uh, which is about like the situation that people think about. Someone breaks in your house, is going to steal your stuff, kill your family, violence of some kind. If a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. Exodus 22, 2. So when God is establishing, uh, when God is relaying his heart to his people through giving law, so you think about the Ten Commandments as like the big picture laws, the rest of these laws are like case law examples. Yep, Right. Sure. So there's this law, thou shalt not reshach is the Hebrew word, and that word reshach is, uh, and the King James translated kill, thou shalt not kill. So many people go to that verse and go, therefore, no killing ever. But I think the word Rashak is best translated murder, thou shalt not murder. Murder would be an unjustified killing. Yeah. Uh, so it's a subset of the word kill. So he's giving examples now. Okay, what do I mean by thou shalt not murder? Thou shalt not rashak uh, If a thief is found breaking in and is struck that he dies, again, that's not even described as rashak you know, yeah. it's, it's kind of like the way that medieval frame things, you know, like mm-hmm. someone died when in reality they were <laughs> killed. Sure. You know, so killing versus dying. So there's even like a slowness to attribute um, causality to the one who does the hitting here. Yeah. Right. Yeah. If sure. The thief breaks in and is struck so that he dies. It's not and you kill him or, and he's murdered or, right. and he's, so the, the phrasing is, uh, still, uh, Saying the cause here is the one breaking in, not the one protecting themselves. So if someone breaks in and is struck that he dies, there should be no blood guilt for him. Meaning, that's fine. Yeah, I hold you. Yeah, because in other killed.
1: instances, I mean, if you murder somebody in the Old Testament law, you it's life for life. It's lots capital of other punishment. Ex- yeah, lots, lots of other of, examples.
0: Yeah. Uh, yeah, God is fine with justice on the one who commits a wrong killing, but He's saying this is not yeah. a wrong. Uh, a death, not a wrong killing. But then the next verse says, but if the sun has risen, there shall be blood guilt for him and he will pay. Hmm. Interesting. So the idea here is, this is where some of the concept of last resort comes in. If someone breaks into your house at night, the idea is uh, help is less available to you. Other means are less available to you. uh, People are asleep. You can't call for help. So you kind of come to the last resort more quickly. Mm -hmm. Whereas if the sun is up, probably you could have ran outside and said, help someone's in my house. And you, people could have like stopped him somehow. Yeah.
1: See, the way I took it was like to go, imagine they break in, you don't attack them. Now in self-defense, they get away. And now the sun comes up the next day and you're like, I'm going to go get them. Yeah. That's how I took that. Like kind of delayed. Where it's not self-defense, it's now more retribution.
0: Yeah, yeah. So that could go both both ways. Um, meaning, so uh, it's not
1: saying self-defense during business hours is a problem.
0: I think what it's getting at is if so. There's conditions here. Okay. So if the sun is up um, and you go and commit vengeance, so this is like going back to like my ethics class I took with Grudem at Phoenix Seminary. He would say that both of those interpretations are in view. Okay. Because uh, the Hebrew is fairly ambiguous. Are you saying if someone breaks into your house and it's during the day and you could have not killed him but you chose to, like you could have exercised other means, yeah, um, then it's off. Or it's saying if someone breaks in your house, gets away with stuff, and then you go hunt them down and kill him, you're guilty. So yeah, so there's there's kind of a both okay. uh, view here. But the point is is. Uh, God blesses a form of self-defense that I think is to somewhat contingent on uh, is this this the last uh, resort or not? Um, And also he's forbidding some form of vengeance because vengeance belongs to him. Yeah. And so if someone breaks into your house in the middle of the night with intent to harm your family and you kill them uh, and you could have not killed them, like if there's other options available to you, yeah. Uh, so that now you're talking about the situational ethics, right? Um, I think that'd be fine. So
1: now we should also say the Bible's not saying you have a duty to to harm them to no. protect yourself. No, so I'm, it's not saying like if you if you fail to kill them, there's blood guiltiness because you know they they hurt you and your family. So it's more like an area of freedom.
0: Yes. Yeah. Uh, and I, I read a book recently that was arguing against self-defense, and it was like you should pray for the person who breaks in because if you don't believe praying for them is effective, then you don't believe in the power of prayer. And I think, sure, pray for them and then do Exodus 22 two two. And it's yeah, like uh, I remember I took a concealed carry class, and the guy teaching the class had this like weird bloodthirst about him. Okay. That was hugely a problem. Like he was like, like he couldn't wait for someone to break into his house so he could just finally have a justifiable reason to blast someone. Yeah. Right. And so I remember I took the class with my dad and I was like, this guy is two bad days away from Hmm. a murderer. Yeah. And that ugliness of heart that you can maybe hide it from the court of law in the United States of America, but you cannot hide it from the Lord. And, Sure. If you're really eager to blast someone who comes into your house, that's a problem, and God will see that. Yeah. But I think uh, being pro-life, forbidding vengeance, but preventing uh, harm is uh, a blessed thing. So well, it's interesting
1: I, that both both kind of have an argument from pro-life, right? Like on one hand, the pacifist is saying, "Hey, because every life matters, you know, don't commit violence, even if it's in defense." The other side would say, well, yeah, every life really matters, so we should protect it, especially innocent life, rather than protecting uh, people who are doing evil to harm innocent people.
0: Yeah, and referencing our previous podcast, if a worthless man is coming in to plot evil and you stop him, uh, you're actually loving him. Yeah. Because you're helping them not. And
1: you're loving all the people he was going to harm.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So I'm not a pacifist. I think just war theory has a lot of holes and problems. I think it's really difficult to apply to the modern nation states we have today. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think that most of the time the teachings of Jesus are all about not having vengeance and about turning the cheek to insult. Um, they're not talking about proactive protection of loved ones. Yeah. So that's my understanding of just more pacifism and one day when i'm the president of the united states i'll have to think more in detail about foreign policy and violent intervention
1: so maybe just to conclude and uh you know i to get more kind of out of the clouds and i, I find myself getting really really ticked uh especially at the media um and anyone who's like kind of okay with hamas uh during this whole Hamas-Israel thing, I mean, it's driving, I get so stinking mad because I look at it and go, I think what you said earlier is like, Hamas does view Israel, like if they want to wipe them off the map, I think Israel has no choice but to destroy Hamas. And Israel has no way to destroy Hamas without significant civilian death. And so I appreciate that Israel's trying to not just nuke the place, but part of me is like, if they did, I think that might be okay. (laughs) And I I realize, like, I, I probably need to do a little more, Hey, just war theory stuff. But there's this like, uh, I don't know. It just feels like there's these voices going like, no, Israel has no right to defend itself. Israel has no right to try to eliminate Hamas. Um, and Israel must play for a tie. And I just go like, I don't, uh, it makes me so mad.
0: Yeah. Well, I, I think the visceral reaction, uh, is generally right, and I generally appreciate it. So we're probably not the best for balancing each other out on this. <laughs> okay. Uh, but I think even like the phrasing in Exodus 22, too, that if a thief is found, and he's struck so he dies, it's the the killer here is the thief. He brought it upon himself. Right. He was struck so that he died. Like there's even like a hesitancy. So my view is that Hamas is killing Palestine because they're hiding behind Palestinians mm. as they're trying to wage terror. Yeah. So while Israel is an active agent, the, to use like Aristotelian terms, like there's the proximate cause, but the final cause or the ultimate cause, so Israel is the proximate cause, but the ultimate or final cause is Hamas. And so I don't know what a clear better way would be. And this is part of like, But so the Israel Hamas thing is the current example. Yeah. But I think that's basically how every war is when you look closely is the question of like, someone's doing evil, we should stop their doing evil. To what extent do that? And so that's, that's why long form things have been written about it is the, uh, is war as hell. Yeah. Like nobody, anybody who prefers war to peace, uh, has never been close to war. Yeah. Uh, any so the complex financial economic global realities uh, notwithstanding war is hell and we should always be praying for the end of wars when christ comes back and makes all things new Uh, in the meantime it's complicated and layered and you have to fear the lord and do the best you can in micro and macro ways yeah
1: well man thanks for helping us think about it it's uh it's it's just humbling to wade into something that clearly there's lots and lots of history and lots and lots of thought about. Um, so help it, helping us think through it a little bit is really great. So appreciate it. And uh, yeah, everybody, thanks for listening. And uh, I think that's it. Any Anything
0: last you want to say, Seth? Just the difficulty of even speaking with clarity about specifics should make us lament and pray for Christ to come back. Yeah. Uh, because even... Uh, when you win in war, you lose. Yeah, it, it's uh, it's terrible, and we should not be thrilled about it. Yeah.
1: All right, brother. Well, thank you for that, and uh, everybody. We'll see you next time.